new report by the Kansas Appleseed Center for Law and Justice is re-examining barriers to food access faced by many Southwest Kansans. For example, SNAP food assistance participation has decreased, even though the need has increased in Stevens, Seward, Grant, Ford, and Finney counties. To go over the report and these findings, I sat down for this week's Reflector podcast with Jamie Reaver, Executive Director of the Kansas Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, and Martha Terhar, Thriving Campaign Advocate. They analyzed what the report means and pointed to some barriers and solutions to those issues. Here's Jamie providing context on the Kansas Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, followed by Martha with a description of her role. Kansas Appleseed is a statewide advocacy organization that's dedicated to the belief that all Kansans working together can build a more thriving, inclusive, and just Kansas. And, you know, to do that, we have three main campaign areas. Our inclusive campaign focuses on work like voter engagement, you know, getting the vote out. And also last year, we focused a lot on census participation in Southwest Kansas. Our just campaign focuses on the child welfare system and also criminal and juvenile justice. And our thriving campaign is our works towards ending hunger for all Kansans. And I've been fortunate enough to be the executive director at Kansas Appleseed since September of 2018. Martha? I am the uh, Southwest Kansas Thriving Advocate. So I'm based in Holcomb, Kansas, and me and my partner live here in Holcomb, Kansas and have family here and are really invested in this community and seeing it thrive. So I'm really excited for the opportunities, and I think it'll be a lot of you know, hitting the ground and building trust and relationships with community partners and making sure that we're centering the right stories and the right issues um, as we continue this campaign. All right, so let's dive into the report and let's start off by kind of establishing a framework here. If you guys would like to tell me a little bit about what food insecurity looks like, whether it be nationwide or here in Kansas, because I think it's you know, pretty easy to think of just an image of, oh, somebody without food, but what does it really mean to be food insecure? Our definition of food insecurity is when someone doesn't know where their next meal is going to come from. Um, You know, food insecurity isn't, I'm hungry and I don't like what's in my fridge. I'm hungry and I don't want to cook myself a meal. It's it's that not knowing. It's scrambling um, day by day, hour by hour to figure out how you're going to feed yourself, how you're going to feed your kids. Um, And unfortunately, too many people um, in Kansas and in our our nation battle that. Um, Our latest figures show that one in six Americans battle food insecurity. So going into this report, if you guys could tell me a little bit about the survey, what went into this, and what exactly it's demonstrating. Yeah, so um, the person previous to me was able to conduct some focus groups with um, the residents and community members of southwestern Kansas, and specifically in the five counties that were listed in the study. So that'd be um, Seward, Stevens, Grant, Ford, and Finney County. And um, so these focus groups were meant to just see, you know, we can talk all day about these statewide programs, but really the important part of it is how they're impacting individuals and and families as well on a daily basis. And so I think, you know, these focus groups are really good in getting us this outlook of what, you know, the 
SNAP and, and these statewide programs um, are doing well and then what they're not doing well in ways that, you know, we can, again, center their stories and their experiences and, you know, uplift their experiences to include it. So some of the things mentioned were, um, you know, limited access to these programs and also just cultural-based food for our immigrant communities um, that they're not being afforded right now. You know, we've, we've been working in Southwest Kansas um, for many years now. And when we were working on, you know, the census um, and that really allowed us to engage with so many residents of Southwest Kansas. And then we continue that work on voter engagement and civic engagement. And for us, our experience there just really resonated with us that it, it showed that um, there's not a lot of services available to residents in Southwest Kansas, that there's there's just such a barrier of knowledge um, about programs that are available and that can and should work better for every resident of Kansas, especially um, people in Southwest Kansas. And so, you know, based on our experiences, we are really committed to staying within the community. Um, we wanted to make sure that, that maybe we could help a little bit, maybe we could share some resources, um, but more importantly, you know, we wanted to make sure that our core mission is realized, that every person in the state can live in the kind of community that, they, they, that they're entitled to live in. And, and for us, hunger is just, should be one of the, hunger should be one of the easiest problems to solve. Um, and our work shows us time and time again that it, it isn't, but you know, we're not giving up. We, we want to work on that. Um, what stood out to you all in the results of this and kind of put into context what those results mean? I think for me, you know, just stepping into this position and wanting to get a baseline of, of what my launching pad is as I start in the Southwest Kansas community um, and coming from the pandemic is seeing, you know, with the household SNAP caseloads, how the number of people accessing this program stayed the same despite the level of unemployment varying and those not matching um, the waves of unemployment is um, something that I think was unusual and not fitting with the findings and research that you know, there's so many correlations between unemployment and food assistance. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the main things you do when you file for unemployment is also apply for um, food stamps and SNAP benefits. So to not see that correlation happen means, you know, something's missing. There's a piece of the puzzle missing. And, and I think that's what stuck out to me the most. There's also the immigrant community, immigrant family part to this. Could you guys touch on that a little bit as well? Yeah, I think, you know, as it says in there, immigrant communities make up 25% of Southwestern Kansas. And that's a big chunk of our community members. And I think, you know, it's good to acknowledge that um, these immigrant communities are not only um, Mexican immigrants, but we have you know, in our southwestern Kansas communities, we have people from Cuba, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, people from Sudan, Somali, Vietnam, China. So it's a wealth of immigrant communities 
And on top of that, there are so many language barriers. And I think a real, another study was released um, from the high school about the amount of languages that are spoken just in the Garden City High School. I think there's 25 different languages spoken in that high school. So, you know, when we're talking about immigrant communities, we just want to keep in mind that that is the amount of immigrant communities that we're working with and it's constantly growing. And I think, you know, with there being safety barriers to immigrant communities accessing these programs and working within a statewide assistance, um, that it can be scary to have your family member be you know, accessing this program or trying to apply and maybe you still don't qualify. Um, so I don't think that these communities are being fully represented in the data that we have. I would, I could also add to that, that, you know, the last several years, um, you know, not just in Southwest Kansas, but really throughout our entire country, you know, we, we watched as immigrants weren't welcomed as they should be. And we watched as um, there was a, a fear, a deep level of skepticism about intent. And so instead of welcoming immigrants, we made it harder and harder and harder for them to come to our country and embrace all that we have. And so I think about some of the policies that have gone into effect that have not just created barriers, but also created a lot of confusion um, in communities. Uh, you know, public charge was, you know, one tool that was used in recent years, unfortunately, is now inadmissible. But, you know, public charge really um, created a huge barrier that, you know, individuals who are so brave to come to our country to make a better path for themselves and for their families, that, you know, basically, if they were, you know, suspected of maybe needing to rely on public assistance within five years, their application could be denied, or their green card could then be refused once they are here. And, and so that creates a, a huge barrier, barrier because, I mean, I don't know my own situation five years from now. Um, and so to like think that we can have this, could have had this magic eight ball that says whether or not someone's going to go hungry now or in four years or in five years and might need some help, you know, that, that's an impossible standard. It's a cruel standard um, because, you know, when a rule like public charge was made as awful as it is, um, it didn't take into effect something like a global pandemic where, um, where families would struggle and, and jobs could be, could be deemed unsafe to go to because of, you know, fear of exposure when kids are out of school and they need a caregiver at home, but who is too scared to leave their job because they need that paycheck to feed themselves and their children. Um, so I think that, you know, as we look at this, this report, we look at the SNAP caseloads and we compare it to the unemployment rates, it just doesn't tell the full picture of, of I think, just um, misinformation and fear that, you know, went through so many communities. I think you both kind of touched on this a little bit in those answers, but Sometimes when you see survey results and you see numbers, it can be easily, you know, you can lose some of the humanity in it. If you guys wouldn't mind kind of illustrating what the realities of food insecurity are for people that are facing this. Well, Noah, I come from a background in domestic violence and human trafficking. And so I think, you know, some of the realistic daily struggles of someone experiencing food insecurity um, for my background also relates to someone's safety in their situation at home. 
And so food insecurity can look on a daily basis like someone, you know, maybe trying to find time to get on the phone and safely call around for places that could provide them food. Um, or if they are not able to leave the house, you know, not even for safety reasons, but um, for those in our disabled community as well, or for people in the immigrant communities who don't feel safe leaving their homes as well, um, that you know, these are some huge barriers to even going to food pantries, going to places that are offering food outside of state assistance programs and SNAP programs. So, you know, the daily struggle is, is very real and, and the humanity part of it is that food is a basic necessity and to put yourself in someone's shoes who is spending every single moment of their day trying to get food is somewhat incomprehensible for so many people of privilege in this country. And, um, and I think it's a lot of the reason why, you know, people can be trafficked as well. Um, I think when people think of trafficking, you know, they think of, you know, international human trafficking um, or, you know, human trafficking rings, but it can be as simple as someone, um, you know, making a trade for food to be in their fridge. And so it's a very real struggle and, and one that can cause a lot of safety barriers for so many reasons. And I also, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, at Appleseed, we received so many calls from families who, who were trying to understand, you know, changes in, you know, to, in SNAP, some really great changes, but there was a lot of changes in SNAP that we were all trying to interpret and, and understand. Or, you know, we received calls from, from individuals who didn't know how they were going to feed their kids um, when the kids were out of school for so long and wondering if, you know, this, this great benefit called pandemic EBT was a reality and when could they hopefully expect it. You know, these, these are just, these are people who are, you know, are working hard every single day and, you know, to take as, as Martha said, to then have to spend hours upon hours trying to navigate a system that is, and sometimes it feels like it's just set up to be so difficult. Um, you know, it's like we've lost a sense of trust so often when when people need help that, you know, we, we want to ask a lot of questions and have a lot of forms filled out, out and we want all the proof in the world that someone's hungry. And isn't it enough just to say, I'm hungry, my kids are hungry and we need help. Part of the, the report is looking at parts of the solution, you know, ways to overcome some of these barriers. Um, so I guess it's a, it's a pretty broad question and one that, you know, is, is the million dollar question, but where do we go from here? Where would you guys like to see Kansas go from here? Um, whether it be at a local level, legislatively, what, what can be done to help start counteracting this? You know, I, I can start, um, the things that I, I see right away, and that's why Martha's role is so important in Southwest Kansas, is to do a lot of outreach with families to help them understand um, how to apply for SNAP and how their families can qualify for SNAP. Um, and, and, you know, because, you know, in 2015, 2016, we had the HOPE Act um, enacted, which put a lot of barriers in place for um, people who need food assistance to get food assistance, you know, and one of those statutes that was put in place was 
um, not accepting federal dollars for outreach efforts. And so it's incumbent on organizations like Kansas Appleseed and food banks to be the ones to do that outreach uh, and to say to people, this is how you can enroll in SNAP. This is why this benefit works for you. And here's what you can get. And even when we saw all of these tremendous changes, um, there was still, and during the pandemic, there was still concern that these changes weren't real, were, weren't real or someone could get in trouble for accessing the extra benefits that they were entitled to. So, you know, the lack of outreach from, you know, the state because of the HOPE Act has, you know, has created, you know, a lot of barriers. And so that is really what we want Martha to be able to work on in the communities, um, you know, and, and I think the HOPE Act has also, you know, made it difficult for immigrant families as well um, to access benefits. You know, one of the, um, the statutes relates to, um, to mixed status households. So if, you know, children in a family um, are, are residents of the United States, but their parents might not be, I mean, we need to help families understand that their children can still qualify for SNAP benefits. But there are some harsh realities in that statute and that, um, you know, all the family income must be counted um, in accessing benefits. But, you know, if someone is not a, not a legal resident of the United States, their income might count, but they won't receive any kind of SNAP benefit. And that just seems harmful to the whole family. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely need to make some legislative changes as well, um, because, you know, we, we see every single day the impacts of what these barriers do. There's always some misconceptions or misunderstandings around subjects that some people like food insecurity that feel like some people are just so used to it. Food is just part of your life and you're used to having it in front of you every day. And you guys have cleared up a few of them. Uh, are there any other misconceptions or misunderstandings, um, any piece of information that you guys think is important to make clear? I think that's a good question. I think as I'm looking at you know, and this report that we put out, you know, one of the parts at the bottom of nutrition program opportunities, it mentions, you know, that in our focus groups, we heard people are getting access to food through informal networks of friends and families. And I think sometimes in, in media and just in conversations, um, a lot of these can be built up as heroic acts that we do for each other. And they shouldn't be. <laughs> As Jamie said before, meals and, and eating and food is a basic necessity and something that someone should just say, you know, I'm hungry and I need help and they should receive help. Um, and we shouldn't have to create an environment where people are having to turn to their friends and family and, and ask these vulnerable requests for basic needs everyone has a lot of pride. And I think to, you know, create an environment where someone has to turn to someone they know and admit that this is something they're struggling with, then that's yet another barrier. And I think it's up to, you know, the state and, and to us to help advocate for people to not have to do that in order to get access to food. And I, I also think as I as I look at the report that, you know, we can talk about um, state and federal policies, we can talk about local policies, but you know, we can also talk about each other and what we can do as, as fellow humans to make sure that no one is going hungry. And for me, we have allowed something as simple as food to become very political 
food should not be political. And, and so I even think about um, some of the barriers that, um, that individuals are facing when they're trying to access food at the local food pantry. Um, you know, with, you know, whether or not they've just showed their driver's license or give a social security number. You know, I, I think that, you know, we, we all need to think about our involvement in food insecurity and the efforts that we're making to, um, to give more people food and just to think about what can I do to make it easier? How can I help? How can I make sure that I'm giving culturally appropriate food to food banks? Making sure that um, when I do give um, food at a food bank, I'm, I'm giving the food that my family will eat, not the food that's been on our shelf for a couple of years. Um, but I think we just all need to, to just pause and, and think about what we would do individually if we didn't have access to food. What, what would our desperation look like? What would we do to feed our children? I've got two kids and believe me, I, I would do, I would move mountains to feed my kids to make sure that they had food and no parent is different from me. We all want the best for our kids and we, we need to be in this together. To wrap it up, giving you guys the mic here, if there's anything that you guys want to share, any lasting thoughts, um, now is the time and I guess we can go ahead and start with Jamie. The one thing that I think we all need to remember is we have the power to make the changes in food policy. You know, whether it's, you know, talking to school board members, city commissioners, county commissioners, you know, state legislators and senators, and then of course our U.S. delegation to Congress, we have the power to make more people have food. We have the power to make sure no one goes hungry and we need to use it. It's the only way that we're going to make change. And so we need to hold our elected officials accountable um, on food policy. All right, Martha. I think for me, as I start in this position and think about ways to be intentional with our outreach and, and doing the groundwork that's going to be necessary to decrease these barriers that are listed in this report. You know, I think about, you know, the amount of erasure that's happened for these immigrant communities and how much, you know, I want to be providing outreach to these communities and facilitating spaces where they are the leaders of the conversation. Um, you know, and I think, you know, that that is my job as the Southwest Kansas Thriving Advocate is to facilitate spaces where, just as Jamie said, people are feeling empowered, that they have the ability to enact change, that they have the ability to tell me and share with their communities that these are the barriers they're specifically experiencing and that there are, you know, here are the elected officials that are impacting directly your community and, and here's their phone number, here's how to talk to them. And just like Jamie talked about the Hope Back, you know, education is power and knowledge is power. And so, you know, educating these communities on these policies that can have wording that's so confusing, I don't understand it either. And so, you know, bringing the breakdown that I've received to these communities and saying, you know, here's the changes that are happening right now that we can make an impact on and just trying to, yeah, empower the community. And I think we can do it. Southwestern Kansas is a very, you know, robust and thriving community of people that love to band together and love to come together for a common cause that's so rich in Southwestern Kansas's history. And I think 
we just have to make sure we're moving forward in a way that's including and actively empowering these immigrant communities and centering their stories because they have the most barriers. All right, Jamie Reaver, Executive Director of the Kansas Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, and Martha Terhar, Thriving Campaign Advocate. Thank you both. It's been a really informative conversation. Uh,